Article 12 is on race, race and ethnicity. It says, we affirm that God made all people from one man, though people often can be distinguished by different ethnicities and nationalities, they are ontological equals before God in both creation and redemption. So again, the starting point, we are all made by God, for God, treated before his law equally. Race is not a biblical category, but rather a social construct that often has been used to classify groups of people in terms of inferiority and superiority. Uh, we, we got a lot of pushback on this point from people who really agree with us and are concerned about what's going on today under the social justice movement. It was interesting, but this, was, uh, this is something that uh, in my conversations with the BDN Yabuele and the books that he suggested I read, I uh, became convinced of that yes, the whole distinction of race between especially black and white was designed in part to help repress blacks by whites. And so historically you can look at it as a social construct. It was constructed in order to maintain uh, an opportunity to take advantage of whites. Not all that goes into the explanation of racial distinctions, but that is part of it. And so in, in an acknowledgement of that, we included this sentence in there, but then we had people who were agreeing with us saying, I can't believe you're giving that up. I can't believe you're saying that. Well, um, ethnicity is a biblical category. You know, race is not a biblical category. And so I'm very willing to have conversations about where did the idea of race come from that is in distinction to what God's word teaches us about different ethnes. And that's, that's what's behind that. All that is good, honest, just, and beautiful in various ethnic backgrounds and experiences can be celebrated as the fruit of God's grace. Um, if you have been around different ethnicities, you have had opportunity to see some of this. I mean, there are just some incredible creativity that exists among certain ethnic groups that seem to be almost natural or don't seem to be as readily available to others. When my first time in Zambia, I was at the Kabwata Baptist Church with uh, Conrad and Bayway, and when they began to sing, it was incredible. And I, they didn't have anybody leading them in singing, at least nobody noticeably leading them. But they all started together. They all swayed together. They had about a 12-part harmony. And, you know... And I'm sitting there feeling so inferior, you know, I mean, it's just, but I'm mesmerized by it. I mean, there's just a, a, a beautiful way of singing uh, that they have. Uh, we, the last time I was there a couple of years ago, they sang a song, God and man at table are sat down. Have you ever heard that, this one? It's perfect for the Lord's Supper. It's about coming to the table and, you know, uh, prostitutes and, and, uh, Hypocrites are welcome here. You know, I mean, it's just repenting sons come home without a fear. It's, it's beautiful. But when I, I brought it back, I said, man, we got to learn to sing this. And it, it took uh, a couple of musicians some time to figure out a way that we could sing it. <laughs> because there wasn't any way I, I played it. You know, I had a recording. Of it. I said, listen to the way they sing it. I said, yeah, we're never going to sing it like that. You know, it's just not, can't do it. We don't have the ability, don't have the giftedness to do it. So there are things in all ethnicities to be celebrated as God's grace. All sinful actions and their results, including evils, is that the right place here? Yeah. Including evils perpetrated between and upon ethnic groups by others are to be confessed as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. Then we deny that Christians should segregate themselves into racial groups or regard racial identity above or even equal to their identity in Christ. Again, unity in Christ being supreme. We deny that any divisions between people groups from unstated attitude of superiority to an overt spirit of resentment have any legitimate place in the fellowship of the redeemed. We reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. You got quite a bit of feedback and pushback on this because the, the first sentence it seems to be okay. Uh, any racial uh, legitimacy or racial foundation to stand on to regard yourself as superior. You know, everybody gets that. 
but to uh, use your racial distinction to see your group as entitled victims of oppression. People say, well, don't you believe that there have been racial groups that have been victims of oppression? Well, yes, there's no doubt we, that is true. Historically, you see it. You see it in this country with slavery and slave trade. Um, there's no doubt about that. However, the, the point is we're, not, we're saying that you don't serve people well by encouraging them to have a victim mentality for, for any reason. You know, are there true victims? Yes, there are true victims. And um, as a pastor, I've, I've dealt with people that have been subjected to, to some of the most horrific experiences in life. Um, and they're victims. They're true victims. But to help them is to try to encourage them to find the grace and strength in Christ to not live as a victim, to not have a mentality that sees themselves primarily as a victim. This worldview that we're talking about encourages that because everybody is divided into groups based on power dynamics and you're either the victim or the victimizer. And the only way that change can come about, which is the goal of critical theory, is for the victimizer to see uh, victimized, the victim, those who have been victimized to see themselves as oppressed and needing to upturn the relationship so that they no longer are oppressed. The goal being equality, but long before equality, there will have to be superiority. This is one of the, if you've ever read Animal Farm by George Orwell, you know, all animals are equal. Some are more equal than others, right? And, uh, and that's, that's the way that it rolls. That's the way this always rolls. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked recently, she was speaking on the oppression of women and how there have been so few women Supreme Court justices. And they said, well, what would it take to make it right? And she said, well, we'd have to have, you know, a, a Supreme, all Supreme Court of women, I think is what she said. They said, well, how long? So how long have we had no women? You know, it's just, so there's, it's not, let's make things right now. We've got to try to factor in how much oppression there's been and atone for that as well. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny that a person's feelings of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. That is a vitally important point. Uh, <clears throat> somebody comes and says, you have offended me. Well, does that mean you're guilty of sin? Not necessarily. I mean, people were offended at Jesus, and, and Jesus never sinned. And this is a tricky thing for Christian relationship and pastoral ministry, because if somebody comes and says, you know, you offended me, well, I want to be sympathetic to them. And I want to know, you know, help me understand, and what did I do? Because if I sinned, I want to repent. And I, I can genuinely feel compassion toward someone who feels offended, and, and some people do feel genuinely offended over things that should not be regarded as offensive. And so they deserve our pity and compassion too, but not for the reasons that they think they deserve it. And so there's a, a real important point here as to how we deal with sin and how we train people to think about sin and righteousness. <clears throat> if, if, and I have a, a, a friend who recently told me this. He said whenever somebody comes up and says, uh, you know, hey, um, in your sermon you offended me, or in your sermon you, you were unclear. He said, I immediately apologize. And, you know, I think there's always reason to apologize for not being as clear as I want to be in my sermons. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, what if, what if somebody just has developed the habit of not listening carefully? Or what if somebody has developed a tendency to be so sensitive that anything you say or do is going to be taken by them as an offense. How do you serve that person? By always apologizing? By always saying, yeah, you know, I'm so sorry for offending you? You don't help them. You actually handicap them. Because if a person is given to that, the way they will genuinely be helped is to learn to think about things in a better frame so that they are quick to forgive, 
slow to take offense. I mean, that's the way God is, right? He's slow to anger. And we need to train people, help people, and grow ourselves to hope all things out of love and to not assume the very worst when something goes a little bit contrary to the way that we would like for it to go. And they, people will never be helped to grow in those areas if they think that because they tell you they're offended, you owe them. And it can sound harsh. I don't mean it to be harsh. This can be mishandled in a thousand ways. But the point is a vitally important one. That sentence is a very important one that a person's feelings of offense or oppression do not necessarily prove that somebody else is guilty of sinful behavior or oppression. Does that make sense? It's important because in this environment that has been cultivated by the way these ideologies have come in today, <clears throat> we, we do have um, this almost automatic default mode. Here's the way it's put, to believe the victim. You know, believe her. Remember that movement? You believe her. There was a book that was published by the Southern Baptist Convention in the wake of the, you know, in trying to address sexual abuse in churches. And there's a lot of good stuff in the book. I hadn't read all of it, but a lot of good practical things, a lot of wisdom. People have written from experiences uh, working through these things and suffering. Some of uh, the writers have suffered sexual abuse in churches. But there is a sentence in the book that says this. I almost got it memorized. I don't think I brought the book with me. But it, it's like this, talking about church leaders, what can you do? Well, first of all, you can believe the victim because innocence until proven guilty is a good standard for our judicial system, but you're not a judge, you know, you're not a legal authority, you're a church leader, and so you should believe the victim. Well, what's wrong with that? At least two things. One, you don't know who the real victim is. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, uh, John slashed my tires. Well, if you don't have any reason to doubt the person that's talking to you, you, you might you know, inherently say, well, man, that's horrible. Let's go look at that. But once that accusation is made, you can be sure of this. There is a victim. There's a victim. Either the person getting the, had the tire slashed or the person who made the false accusation about having the tire slashed or the person against whom the false accusation was made. So in a case like, you know, this man abused me, this person abused me, once that charge is made, there's a victim, at least one. You, you don't know automatically who it is. And I'm not suggesting somebody comes in and bears their soul to you and says, it's hard for me to talk about this, I've never admitted to anybody in 30 years, but this happened to me that you say, well, you know, I'm not sure you're telling the truth. I mean, that, that's not at all, not at all what's being said. You want to you listen you want to listen to anyone who comes saying that they've been victimized. And you want to be compassionate and sympathetic. And if there's danger, you want to get them out of danger immediately. A woman comes and says, my husband's beating me. Then you provide her a safe place. And then we, then we start talking and sorting things out. But uh, you, know, you don't say, well, I'm not sure you're telling the truth. We've got to figure out who the victim is. Not that. But it, there, there are too many examples in history and the Bible of people claiming to be victimized who were not victimized. And so the assertion that you've offended me, the assertion, assertion that you've oppressed me, does not automatically, inherently mean that I am guilty of victimizing you or oppressing you. How do we know if it's true or not? Well, you look at the evidence. You, you sort it out. This Bible talks about witnesses. And we have ways to gather witness evidence today that were not known in Bible times. So we have more uh, information accessible to us that we can secure to try to get witness to what actually happened. The, the, what's being guarded against here in this statement is blackmail, you know, emotional blackmail, which has gone on time and again. The best statement I've read about it is from John Piper in which he sets it up real clearly. Somebody comes and says, hey man, you know, you hurt me, you, you've offended me, and therefore they think they've gotten the high ground and can require of you what you need to do as one who's been offensive, when you may not have been offensive at all. You know, just like Jesus was not 
offensive at all. So the Bible gives us guidelines as to understanding what sin is, what sin is not. The Bible tells us how to repent when we're guilty of sin, how to make things right whenever we've done wrong. But the Bible's the one that gets the final say in that. And somebody who says, you know what, uh, you really offended me last week <clears throat> because you didn't speak to me and you're not even aware of being in the same room with a person uh, can't hold you to be guilty of intentionally neglecting to speak to them. And if you let them get away with that, you're hindering their spiritual growth. You really need to help people to grow beyond that. I heard a, a story Burke Parson told me when he was early serving with R.C. Sproul as an elder there at St. Andrews in Orlando. They had an elders meeting and uh, an elder really came after Burke in the meeting and Burke apologized to him. And Sproul just sat there and listened to it. And so after the meeting, Sproul called Burke to stay, stay with him. And he talked to him. He says, don't you ever do that again. Burke said, what are you talking about? He said, this man was wrong in what he was saying about you. So he was wrong to make those kinds of demands and to make those kind of accusations. And when you apologized, you just empowered him to do that more and more. So you've hurt him. You haven't helped him. You haven't helped shepherd him. So that's an important point to remember. Sproul was seeing it right. And this statement is designed, that last sentence is designed to guard against guilt manipulation and uh, a, a, an injustice being done in the name of pursuing justice. Culture, this is probably the most controversial of all the articles. We affirm that some cultures operate on assumptions that are inherently better than those of other cultures because of the biblical truths that inform those worldviews that have produced these distinct assumptions. Uh, some cultures better than others. Now, you know what that is. That's ethnocentrism. That's thinking that you know, you, there's, there's a reason to think one culture is better than another. And yet, I mean, certainly it is true. There's just no doubt about that. I mean, if, if you're going to be um, if you're going to be taken captive and put in prison or if you're going to be arrested and put in prison, would you rather be in prison in America or Turkey? Yeah. I mean, it, some cultures are better than others in the way they do things. I, I was talking, I've already forgotten your name. Nick, last, or just in the last break, Nick and I were talking about this very point, and he talked about having experience in the Mayan culture and how many things in that culture are just so warm-hearted and family-oriented and welcoming, taking people in. And uh, I was reminded of the story of Marcus Luttrell, who wrote the book Lone Survivor. If you've not read the book, I mean, it's a pretty graphic book, but it's a military uh, story. It's fascinating. But my daughter went to serve among Pashtun people in northern Pakistan, and the Pashtun are the people of the Taliban. And the Pashtuns are the ones that, uh, or they were Pashtun people that Marcus Luttrell and his SEAL team went out to... Uh, kill. There was a leader of a, uh, a group that had been wreaking havoc and so they were going to try to take him out. And when Luttrell and his team got there, they made a decision that resulted in them being exposed to the Taliban. They were trying to be kind to a sheep herder and the result was their team got blown apart. There were four of them and they just got just taken apart uh, by guns and he survived. And so they couldn't get word back to the base to come rescue them. Uh, their radio was damaged, the cell service wasn't working, and uh, he tried his best uh, to survive, and he rolled down cliffs and got bombs, nearly blew him apart, shot up, and I think it was three or four days he survived, and he kind of just falls into this little stream of water, and he's delusional, and he looks up, and there's two guys there, one of them's got an AK-47 pointed at him, and he thinks, this is it, you know, I'm, I'm dead. Uh, but it was two people from a nearby village, a Pashtun village, and they took him into their home and, and where they lived. And, and the Pashtun culture has a provision in it. It's longstanding. I mean, it's just been handed down. It's part of who they are, called Pashtun Wali. I don't know that this is spelled out in the book. It might be. I can't remember. But I learned this when my daughter went over to, to Pakistan. And Pashtun Wali basically says, if I receive you to my home, to my table, then I am your defender. And so they took Marcus Luttrell in. He's half, three-quarters dead. And they kind of nurse him back to life. They realize, you know, he's an American. The Taliban finds out 
that he's in the village. They circle the village. They shoot up the village. They won't let him go. They won't, they won't turn him over. And it's because of their cultural custom of protecting a weak person who's come under their care. Sent a messenger out that ultimately alerted, was able to get out and alerted the army. They came and were able to rescue. And you can read about it in the book, uh, Lone Survivor. Well, that's just one illustration of an element in a culture that is great. I mean, man, praise God he fell into that culture and not to some uh, radical Islamic uh, Iranian culture. You know, would have handed him over in a heartbeat. So that's a, uh, a recognition that some biblical truths inform worldviews that have built certain cultures more so than others, which make those cultures inherently better. It's not a very politically correct thing to say today, but it's an important point. Those elements of a given culture that reflect divine revelation should be celebrated and promoted. The various cultures out of which we have been called all have features that are worldly and sinful. And therefore, those sinful features should be repudiated for the honor of Christ. We affirm wherever, whatever evil influences to which we have been subjected via our culture can be and must be overcome through conversion and the training of both mind and heart through biblical truth. You know, one of the ways that, that I was confronted with this biblically in my own studies is what Paul writes in Titus 1, that all Cretans are liars. I mean, what's he saying? You know, I mean, does he mean every single Cretan that's ever lived is just a notorious liar? No, he's just saying this is a part of their culture. You know, to, to, to Corinthianize someone, you know, that was, a, that was a proverbial statement because of the wickedness in Corinth. It was just known. And th these things happen. I mean, these things get, they become a reality because of this reality that, that cultures have both weaknesses and strengths. The last statements on race, specifically racism, we affirm that racism is a sin rooted in pride and malice, which must be condemned and renounced by all who would honor the image of God in all people. Such racial sin can subtly or overtly manifest itself in racial animosity or racial vainglory. Such sinful prejudice or partiality falls short of God's revealed will and violates the royal law of love. Um, so that's pretty cut and dried. People would affirm that without too much hesitation. Uh, the next sentence, we affirm virtually all cultures, including our own, at times contain laws and systems that foster racist attitudes and policies. Again, it, it, has there ever been systemic racism? Absolutely there has. There's been codified racism in this nation. And by God's grace, that's been overcome, uh, at least on the books. Are there still vestiges of racism in our culture? Without a doubt there are. No doubt about it. And are there ways that maybe this has been uh, protected and implemented or, or kept in place without being overthrown the way it should be? Yeah, no doubt about that too. Should we address it? Yes, we should definitely address it. It's in the denial, though, that people took exception. We deny that treating people with sinful partiality or prejudice is consistent with biblical Christianity. We deny that only those in positions of power are capable of racism or that individuals of any particular ethnic groups are incapable of racism. That sentence flies in the face of critical race theory because racism is majority race plus power. And it's a power structure more than it is a, a racial distinction. Therefore, those that are the oppressed can never be guilty of racism. And those who are in the majority um, race that are inherently oppressors are without doubt always participating in a racist system. Therefore, they say when they buy into this, I am a racist. That's not always based on skin. No, that's right. You know, that's right. That's right. In our context, it is. We deny that systemic racism is in any way compatible with the core principles of historic evangelical convictions. So where it exists, it needs to be rooted out. We deny that the Bible can be legitimately used to foster or justify partiality, prejudice, or contempt toward other ethnicities. Though it has been used, it cannot legitimately be used that way. We deny that the contemporary evangelical movement has any deliberate agenda to elevate one ethnic group and subjugate another. And that's contended because it's been argued that white evangelicalism is designed to subjugate those that are not in a part of whiteness. 
the last sentence was added with some debate. It says, we emphatically deny that lectures on social issues or activism aimed at reshaping wider culture are as vital to the life and health of the church as the preaching of the gospel and exposition of scripture. Historically, such things tend to become distractions that inevitably lead to departures from the gospel. Well, it says we deny that they are as vital as the exposition of the scripture and preaching of the gospel. Some have taken this to mean that there's no place to address cultural, social, political issues in the context of a church's ministry. Well, certainly to the degree that those things are extensions of and applications of what the word says about ethical, moral issues, they ought to be addressed. But for a church to become a little more than or a little different than a political action committee is a failure of its mission, and we've got to guard against that. So this statement is trying to address that without going uh, overboard. Okay, questions, comments on the statement on social justice in the gospel? This is kind of a quick flyover there. What was the main objection? Well, I tried to point them out as I was going through. Uh, one of the main objections was that it was foolish for us to do this. Uh, you know, why in the world are you calling attention to these things? Nobody's fighting about this, and here you are raising, you're creating problems, um, which I don't think was the case at all. I think we created divisions, created divisions. I don't think it created divisions, it revealed divisions. And there's a real distinction there. And um, uh, that we should have consulted with more people, we should have asked other people to participate. Um, we didn't have enough people of color, we didn't have any women uh, participate in it. So, yeah, one of the early accusations this is just a bunch of angry old white guys. You know, we have we had two black fellows that participated that took exception to that and so that quieted down except then they they had um, what's it called uh, they have an inherent sense of a what is it anyhow internally they've internalized the oppressive way of thinking so they though they don't do it outwardly internally they've just kind of bought into it uh, the way this has been said to my fellow elder and Bodie Balkum and others as well that I've talked to who are uh, black people is that they've, they've been accused of, of cooning, which is a word I learned in this whole conquest. Whoa. Yeah, cooning, yes. yeah, where you, it's what blacks are accused of who are performing for whites. You know, they're just doing what whites want them to do in order to be accepted by whites. Um, not authentically black, you know, black on the outside, white on the inside. I mean, there's all kind of other really crude things that have been said, and, it, and it's, it's, it's just horrible. I mean, you, anybody that knows Bodie Balkum, uh, you know, first of all, the dude's got a black belt in jiu-jitsu, you know. I mean, I wouldn't want to just go off accusing him of things uh, just for my own safety. <laughs> but, yeah, bad Bodie, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you know, Bodie's just one of the most thoughtful men I know, and he's thought long and hard about these issues longer than most people I know. And to uh, just dismiss him, or Craig Mitchell is another man that's involved in this, uh, very thoughtful as well, to dismiss those guys for, um, because they don't toe the party line is, is, is a commentary on those making the accusations far more than it is those men. Any other questions, comments on this? There was an interesting story recently that came out from Portland State University where a couple of atheist professors decided that as long as you, they had a hypothesis that as long as you include certain buzzwords in a paper, uh, you can be published by upper echelon journals. And so what they did was they took some text from Hitler's Mein Kampf and just added some, changed, changed some of the words. And they were successful until somebody finally figured it out and, and called them out. And so my question has to do with, do you see any, in your research and your reading, do you see any, any response to these ideologies in the secular world yeah. like that? You're talking about James Lindsay and Peter Boghossian and Helen Pluckrose, those three that exposed this. They were not found out, by the way, they exposed it themselves. They were successful, massively successful. These are three atheist scholars I've met I've talked to Peter on the phone, I've met James, uh, interviewed him for our documentary. Don't know if we'll use it or how much or how, but uh, um, 
It's a great story. I, I really like him. He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. But he came to Cape Coral a couple of weeks ago, and we sat down, talked about these things because they have seen it, they have articulated it, and they are pushing back against it, and they are being brutalized from the secular left uh, because of it. But James, he came to church. It's the first time he's been in church in six years. And uh, got to talk to him about the gospel, talk to him about different things that we obviously disagree on. Uh, he told my associate pastor before he left on Monday to go catch a plane, he said, if I were to write the memoirs of my life today, this last weekend would be a chapter entitled Discovering Faith. He says, now, don't take it to mean what you want it to mean. He says, you know, <laughs> I'm not a Christian, I haven't converted. He said, but it just, you know, he's seen it up close. And um, so he's a brilliant guy, lovely guy. Peter Bogosian, wonderful, warm-hearted fellow. And what these men did, if you're not familiar with the story, you can just Google uh, grievance study hoax. Because they, they were fed up. It's it is brilliant. It's, it's, they were fed up with identity politics and seeing how it was destroying the academy. These are true liberals, classical liberals, which I think I may have said that already today. The, the classical liberals are more our friends than some of the guys that are conservatives that are buying into this. Because classical liberalism understands that this is, uh, that these things are, are undermining the very foundations of, of Western civilization that allows for the reality of classical liberalism. So what they did is they, they submitted, I think it was 20 different papers. They wrote 20 scholarly papers, submitted them to peer-reviewed journals. And these papers were completely bogus. They were bogus. They made up things. Uh, one of them was chapter three, I think, from Mein Kampf. And they took out Jews and replaced it with oppressed, you know, and, and it's, or oppressors. And I think that was it. And you know, just did all this stuff. They wrote one on Portland dog parks. How Portland dog parks have contributed to the rape culture in Portland. I mean, it's so, it sounds so ludicrous. These things were, that one actually won an award. It not only was published, it won an award. And so they submitted all these things. Five of them, I think it was five of them, got published. And then they did this like seven minute YouTube video and were reading the acceptance letters and the awards letters. Oh, this is brilliant. Thank you so much. They're reading, they're just laughing, you know. Well, they have been excoriated. In fact, Peter Bogosian has been uh, banned. He's a, I think tenured professor at Portland State, he's been banned from Portland State. I don't know all that that means, but he's been under the guns, had meetings this week even, uh, where they're, they're just trying to do away with him. And he can't, he can no longer teach or participate in certain levels of what they've got going on, but he's still got to show up for work. And get all, it, it, they're just trying to make his life miserable. He's brought, been brought up on dozens of charges uh, since that time, just people making up stuff about him. You know, that he's, that, yeah, I don't think they can get rid of him, you know, but it's just, it, but it's, it's, but his life is miserable. I mean, his life is death threats, his wife, his children. I mean, it's horrible, some of the things that he was telling me that have gone on. But these, from the academy, yeah, they see it, they get it, they've documented it. They, they, they show what James was talking to us about is he, he's seen how this has destroyed knitting clubs, it's destroyed Zen Buddhist organizations, it's destroyed the new, the new liberalism. Yeah, the new new atheist movement. Yeah, these guys were these men were evangelists for the new atheist movement. They were apologists. They did street, what they called uh, street epistemology, where they would go and try to convert Christians to atheism. And the new atheist movement just got devoured by critical theory coming in. James Lindsay <laughs> wrote a review. I may read part of it to you. Brought it with me. Helen Pluckrose, who's an English lady. Uh, sent a book to James Lindsay and told him he had to review it. It's called, uh, it's called Critical Dietetics and Critical Nutrition. I'm going to make sure I pull it up, find it here. Critical di uh, Dietitians. Dietitians, yeah. Critical Dietics, di Dietetics and Critical Nutrition. And I'll have to find, I'll try to, I'll try to find it for you later. Can't, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, if it, if it weren't so serious, you'd just, you'd die laughing at this stuff. 
Well, I can't find it. But anyway, he says, hey, I don't know anything about nutrition, diet, dietetics. I'm not going to read this book. She said, read the book and write a review. So he read the book, and he said, this, he said, I recommend this book to everybody, not because it has anything to teach you about nutrition, but because it's the classic example of how critical theory has just taken over everything. So that certain food groups, why, why are we told to eat these groups? And why are we appropriating Mexican food? Who gets to say it's Mexican food? You know, I mean, he, he calls it an insane asylum in print. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a field of study, critical dietetics. I think I said earlier critical theories rather than critical theory because crit studies, as they're called, have been applied to everything, even something as bizarre as nutrition. So they wrote these papers, got published, and now they're, you know, celebrities of sort, and yet they are being just whipped by the leftist academy. And uh, that's one area that's being, we're seeing pushback in. And these guys, I mean, I, I, I don't know them well, what I know of them, I love them, I want them to come to Christ, and I'm delighted to be able to talk to them. And I've learned from them, I've learned a great deal from them about how this works. In fact, there is a video called The Trojan Horse that Mike O'Fallon and Sovereign Nations has published. It's a series of interviews with these two guys in New York City. One released a couple of weeks ago on Resolution 9 in the SBC. Another one, I've just watched part of it. Mike sent it to me yesterday. And I think it's releasing, I don't know, some today, tomorrow, early next week. But watch for that. You can, you can see these guys in their own voices describing what's going on in the academic world. Yes? His, the, in that first interview, it was, I mean, he said it in jest. He said, now, when I was real active in the New Atheist, he said, if I'd have known about this woke stuff, I would have converted pastors to woke pastors, sent them out, and it destroyed Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when he was talking to us, and he said, you guys don't understand what you're up against. This is not a theological movement. This is an ideological movement, and it knows no boundaries. And he did. There's a knitting club that got destroyed. Some woman put something up on Instagram about something she knitted. And I forget now if it was too white or if she used some language that offended people, but she got shut down. Businesses have been run out of business uh, because they have been caught up in being accused of being oppressors. Uh, so he, doc he, he was talking about Zen Buddhist, Muslim groups, knitting clubs, racing, cycling clubs, uh, scouting groups. I mean, was, he said, it's the same thing. It's just, he said, now it's just come to Christianity. And as atheists, they sit outside saying, you guys are nuts to let this go on. And so you're standing by and you think that this is just going to go away if you're, if you're nice, if you treat people respectfully. They say, you don't know what you've got on your hands here. So this is an insidious worldview that will destroy everything that it touches. And these are atheists who are fighting against leftists. They're classic liberals fighting against leftists that have just brought this stuff in. Anything else? Anybody else? Okay, well let me shift gears and uh, let's begin to look at definitions because I've used some words and haven't defined them clearly. I want to go back and define them now and give you some other words as well. These are, and there's a, it's already growing. I mean, I don't think I've got standpoint epistemology in this list, but I've given you a little bit of an understanding of that, that you know, what you know and how your authority for understanding and speaking to issues is dependent upon your social location and where you are in the spectrum of intersectional identities. And the more of these oppressed identities you have, the more authority you bring with you to speak to these issues. So that's standpoint epistemology. But let me give you the ones that I prepared for the class. Social justice itself. I mean, what is meant by social justice? One of the criticisms we got for the statement is you never define social justice. My response is, yeah, because nobody defines it. You know, it's just, it's hard to define, and it's a slippery word. It's like one of these words that's used to cover a multitude of things. This term is hard to define precisely because it's used by so many different ways, in so many different ways, by so many different proponents of it. Antonio Martino is an Italian economist and politician, and he has, has astutely noted this. 
that social justice owes its immense popularity precisely to its ambiguity and meaninglessness. It can be used, he says, by different people holding quite different views to designate a wide variety of different things. Its obvious appeal stems from its persuasive strength, from its positive connotations, which allows the user to praise his own ideas and simultaneously ex express contempt for the ideas of those who don't agree with him. That's in a 1982 editorial called The Myth of Social Justice. <laughs> this is actually cited in the book by Ron Nash that uh, you have as one of the textbooks. Luigi Taparelli was an Italian Jesuit priest. He's the first one we know of to have used the term social justice. He used it in the late 18th century to describe principles for a just society. Uh, many people, and I'd probably say most people today who use social justice aren't thinking about Luigi Taparelli. You know, they don't have any concept of who he is. This term went on to be used in the 18th and 19th century Roman Catholic social theory uh, initiatives. And so the ways that they began to do social work was very often informed by this way of thinking about social justice. Most people who use the term today are using it in a far less sophisticated approach to social justice than the Catholics had. And they usually mean by it that laws and cultural practices, economic policies and such should be just and fair. And of course, when somebody tells you that something needs to be done in a just way or a fair way, you should ask the question, by what standard? Who are we, whose justice are we talking about here? The United Nations published a booklet entitled Social Justice in an Open World, The Role of the United Nations. This is a 2006 booklet. Social Justice in an Open World, The Role of the United Nations. In this booklet, they write that social justice, quote, may be broadly understood as the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. Fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. Okay, so what question should you ask when you hear that? Fair and compassionate by whose standard? You know, who, who's, who's the one that gets to make up what fair and compassionate is? And it's interesting, the language that's used here, distribution. They don't say redistribution, but that's exactly what they're talking about. This definition focuses primarily on economic equity. However, it frames the concern in pretty standard terms of fairness and compassion. And who can argue against being fair and compassionate? Again, by what standard? The UN booklet goes on to say, quote, social justice is not possible without strong and coherent redistributive policies conceived and implemented by public agencies. So there it is, they go ahead and tip their hands. Redistributive policies. Well, what's the difference between redistribution of wealth and generosity? Yeah. If I'm, if generosity is something we ought to all encourage as followers of Christ. God gave his son for us. Uh, Christ did not maintain an equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming a man among us. Uh, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. All of that should cause us to grow in generosity. But that's a far cry from saying, okay, in order for us to have a generous society, we're going to have to figure out how much everybody has here and redistribute it so we all have the same. That's coercive, and that's stealing, and that's exactly the way that socialism and communism, however, have worked, have operated. This vision that the UN puts out of social justice requires a strong, centralized, authoritative agency in order to create, or their language conceive, and administer, their language implement, mechanisms to redistribute wealth, which is the fruits of economic growth. With this understanding of social justice and what is required to bring it about, we should not be surprised to read this candid admission later in the report, or earlier in the report. This is a quote. Present day believers in absolute truth, identified with virtue and justice, are neither willing nor desirable companions for the defenders of social justice. I want to read you that again. Present-day believers in an absolute truth identified with virtue and justice 
are neither willing nor desirable companions for the defenders of social justice. So you know what that's saying. People like you and me need not apply. You know, so, yeah, well, first of all, you won't be willing, so we just know that, but we don't want them. They're not desirable. They are the undesirables in social justice concerns. So anybody who's gonna defend social justice has to keep at arm's length anybody who is a believer in absolute truth that's identified with virtue and justice. So if you believe there is such a thing as absolute truth and that this absolute truth defines what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, you're an opponent of social justice, according to the United Nations. Well, this is obviously problematic for Christians, and I think one of the ways we're being played today is this type of, of thinking has come in to break down our adherence to the absolute standards and to identify ourselves as true believers in absolute standards. One of the standard college textbooks on the subject of social justice is entitled Readings for Diversity in Social Justice. And it defines social justice as, quote, the elimination of all forms of social oppression. So where oppression exists, then justice should seek to eliminate it. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, we get that. The Bible tells us in many places that we are to stand for justice, stand against injustice. In Isaiah 117, God says that we are to learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That's right. Christians ought to say amen to those initiatives. Psalm 82 verse 3 says, Give justice to the weak, the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. But it's precisely at this point that a sleight of hand comes in. They get us because they've used biblical language to call attention to situations that the Bible addresses. Provide justice for the fatherless. Provide justice for the widow. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. The question that must be answered whenever we are appealed to on the basis of these and other texts is who gets to determine who the oppressed are? Who identifies who the true oppressed and true oppressors are? And what does it mean to do justice for them? So again, it's the fundamental question of by what standard? Do we have a standard? Has God spoken? So social justice, if you want a more uh, engaging explanation of it, see Bodie Bauckham's talk that he gave at the Southeast Founders Conference in December 2019. I'm sorry, January 2019. January 2019. A second term, <coughs> Marxism. Marxism. This is a socioeconomic theory that views class relations and social conflict using a materialist interpretation of historical development and takes dialectical views of social transformation. It originates from the works of 19th century German philosophers Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. You can get this from Wikipedia, you can get this from Marxist uh, websites themselves. Marxism views people as divided by classes based on their access to the means of production of wealth. Those who own the means of productions, factory owners, business owners, are the oppressors, the bourgeoisie. Those who are the working class, the proletariat who work in the factories, are the oppressed. In 1988, nah, that's not right. 1888, let's say, man, he was dead. 1888, Friedrich Engels published a new preface to the English edition of the Communist Manifesto, which was published 40 years prior to that, 1848, by Engels and Marx. And this is what he said in that new preface. The manifesto being our joint production, I consider myself bound to state that the fundamental proposition which forms the nucleus belongs to Mark, Marx. That proposition is this, that in every historical epoch, 
the prevailing mode of economic production and exchange and the social organization necessarily following from it form the basis upon which is, which is built and from which alone can be explained the political and intellectual history of that epoch. And so, whoever controls the levers of production, power, are the ones who determine what the culture will be where that production takes place. So they set the, um, the organization of the political and intellectual history of that era. <clears throat> that consequently the whole history of mankind since the dissolution of primitive tribal society holding land in common ownership has been a history of class struggles, contests between exploiting the exploiting ones and the exploited, ruling and the oppressed classes. That the history of these class struggles forms a series of evolutions in which nowadays a stage has been reached where the exploited and oppressed class the proletariat, cannot attain its emancipation from the sway of the exploiting and ruling class, the bourgeoisie, without at the same time and once for all emancipating society at large from all exploitation, oppression, class distinction, and class struggles. So even here you see in the late 19th century the seeds from which sprung this new cultural Marxist idea because Engels is saying in the preface that you can't just do it economically. You can't just have a revolution where the have-nots get to get to be in the position where the haves have been and the haves are taken down a notch so that there can be equality. But rather, we must work for the emancipating of society at large from all exploitation, oppression, class distinction, and class struggles. So this basically was a a, a sign pointing forward to those who would come in the next generation of Marxists and take up the mantle and look around and say, you know, economic Marxism has not worked. It did not do what Marx said it would do. But what about all these oppressed classes? What about all the struggles that we see from class to class? And how are people to be classified? I mean, they, they took what Engels had sewn in and just brought it to fruition. Marx predicted that the oppressed class would eventually rise up in rebellion against their oppressors to bring about a utopian socialist revolution. The rise of totalitarianism in Germany and Russia, along with the rise of upwardly mobile middle class classes in England and the United States, left many Marxists disillusioned. So we'll stop with Marxism before we go on to more definitions. Any comment or question before we take a break? All right, let's take a break and we'll come back in about 10 minutes. Thank you for listening to the weekly discourse. If you have been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.